With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. What happens when someone who hasn't had systemic power is elevated into a leadership position where power is then conferred onto them? As Carla Mantaroso tells me, that experience can be shocking. You probably know that either because you have lived it or if you've watched another leader grapple with that same discomfort. It is one of the many uncomfortable truths that Carla, a leadership coach, strategist, and racial equity advocate, manages to articulate like no one else can, which is why I wanted to talk with her about the work she's doing to build a language around power, to coach leaders who are trying to do both the work of their organizations and the work of dismantling workplace inequity, and what it looks like to get it right when it feels so easy to get it wrong. Carla, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so excited to do it. Long time fan. (laughs) First time caller. (laughs) First time caller, long time fan. (laughs) As you know, I am obsessed with your work, obsessed with you. You go to USC, going through your LinkedIn, sort of watching those early years out of college where it's like, you know, you want to be in the change space, you want to be in the nonprofit space, but you can sort of feel the early 20s trying to figure out what that is. And you land at Code 2040, you spend more than six years there, about half of it as its CEO. Around the time you become its CEO, you find out that the organization is in a $3 million deficit. Mm -hmm. Can you take me back to that moment? I think that when I got the organization, I was clear there was a lot of work that needed to happen, right? And I had had conversations about the cultural work that needed to happen in the organization. It wasn't just that we had, we could not get through the year, that there were $3 million less than we needed in the year. It's that we didn't have a pipeline 
of people that we were going to be talking to within the first six months of my time there that would have helped raise that money in time. And I remember the feeling of my stomach clenching when I understood the amount of money, in particular because we had been an organization with the reputation that we were just financially fine. And in the nonprofit space, a lot of CEOs of color will talk about the brand to budget differential. <laughs> like you have these huge brands that you're like, okay, people know me and reporters come and talk to me right. as an expert. You have 100,000 <laughs> Instagram followers and no cash. Yes. <laughs> right. (laughs) And it's the requirement, right? Because if you are not known in that way, if you are not talked about in the conversation in that way, only 4% of all charitable giving in the entire country goes to Black and Latinx-led organizations. And of that, only 0.6% goes to Black and Latinx women. So you're in a small minority over a small minority of people who are getting money, so you like know those things. And on the other side of that, you're, you have this thing, like at Code 2040, we had this thing called the Fellows Program. And that was really successfully known. But the better we became at getting young people for what they said was like, there was no pipeline of young people of color to do this work. There was. And the better we became at it, the harder it got to get them into companies, right? And so it just, we needed a complete readjustment of our model because scaling was not going to be the way that we did the work. And an understanding that what we were fighting was the segregation of salaried work in America, not just the need to onboard people into the terms and the ways they interview and skilling them from their university careers to this. It was like the fundamental structural barriers that make it so Black and Latinx and Native people drop off in our waged workforce after they make $60,000. Like you see it in the data. After the $60,000 mark, we disappear somewhere. (laughs) We talk about it as diversity and inclusion, but it is the segregation of salaried work in America. And we do not have a nuanced conversation around that. And so we had to make a lot of really hard changes because we knew we were fighting structural barriers and not just prepping an eager workforce to be able to assimilate, which is really what the ask is all the time. We're in a moment where to be a responsible leader means that you are doing dual track work. You are both doing the work of disentangling workplace inequity, and you are doing the work of whatever your work is, putting on a television show, making sure there are more Latinxes intact. Like it, it doesn't, yeah. whatever the work is, whatever but it's like you are doing. Yeah, I've been calling it a dual mandate. We've got to do both projects, which is like the desegregation of salaried work and our mission, vision, purpose, right? And that is everything from artists and creators who all of a sudden have power to nonprofit executives to tech CEOs, like everywhere, right? Like the expectation is that we run a dual mandate. Because if we don't, What we're saying is we are okay with the subjugation of our own people in systems that have not retained them, have not recruited them. And I think that that is causing, in the places where we have multi actual multiracial workplaces, 
we are living a future I think America is heading to, where there are just different systems and conversations that are needed when you are managing a plurality and when you are managing a homogenous workplace. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the ball is filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. Okay, so that's like a lot of high-level talk. What does it actually mean? What does it actually look like? It's like when you are making decisions about where you are giving your resources, right, within an organization, I think all workplaces should be thinking about where are the places that people of color have been pushed out because the system actually was designed for that. Or people of color haven't been able to come in because the system was designed for that. And while all workplaces need to be doing that, really the only people being held accountable for that are leaders of color, right? And I think because representation, we've talked about representation so much in a way I think was necessary in one part of our journey, but it leads people to believe that a person just by being Black, Latinx, Native, or Asian knows more about creating equitable workplaces than a white person does. <laughs> like When really you're in the discovery of all of the ways in which it has been inequitable, right? Like you will be working on something and you're like, oh, I'm going to change our recruiting process. We're going to say, we're not going to judge anyone by pedigree in this workplace, right? So you're like, we're taking off what university you went to in every system. But literally every applicant tracking system in the world has it 
for you to put in. So like the systems fix actually takes a lot of diligence and a lot of commitment to, to execute on. And people will name drop in a cover letter. Like to manage that out, you have to look at all of the places in which you are using that. And that sounds easy, but ends up being incredibly hard and like a process that takes an incredibly long amount of time. Meanwhile, you have people on your team that are like annoyed and angry that those things are not changing and fast or that they didn't change actually the day that you, a leader, determined to make something equitable, like took charge. Like it was, it should have been automatic that I, as a leader of color, was able to change all of these things on day one. And our young people, our junior level, entry level, mid-level people are not wrong. They are seeing some really important things that we need to change. And our ability to communicate to each other and be in a solutions-oriented space around that inequity is really hard and I think is causing internal struggles across progressive-leaning organizations across the country. So part of your work is that you're a coach. How do you coach leaders of color through that exact challenge? I've been doing a few different things. So I'm a coach. So I coach both individual leaders and executive teams. And I'm a strategist. So I'll go in and help a team navigate a really tough moment and help people start to think about the execution of these things, not just from the idea or insight, but what does it mean operationally to tackle all of this stuff? And like the identity shift that happens for leaders of color, because I think for a lot of us, we see ourselves as the first and don't understand the level of power we are carrying the moment that that becomes true. For a long time, power was equated with money. Money got you information, money got you access Part of what you argue is that the digital revolution, the internet, has changed our access to information. And as you said to me, you take that piece, which is the digital revolution, you take demographic shift, where those two things meet, what then happens? Yeah, it's explosion. <laughs> so I forget. I forget sometimes that the that uh, Latina to Latina listeners can't see my hands. Just make yeah. the gesture that I articulate. <laughs> it's an explosion. So I think up until now, we got power through institutions. So like, if I was going to get power, and I define power as like the ability to change my life and another person's life through access to money, information decision makers, so my ability to influence people who have decision-making rights, megaphone, so the ability for my ideas to carry, and decision-making rights. And I think those things came in a package that you got with enough seniority at a place, network connections that put you in a place, money that allowed you to enter it. And in some places, like the performance of whiteness and the performance of patriarchy, right? And, and that's workplaces, that's churches, that's like the VFW, like volunteer associations, HOAs, that's how people got power. And the internet made it so we could access one of those things and not all of those things, right? And so 
also a ton harder for people to be like, oh, I have power right now. They do not feel powerful because power has been equated to access to luxury more than it has all of those mechanisms and tools that we have. So they're like, I'm not in luxury, so it must mean that I don't have power, which is not accurate. And then you've got people coming into institutions that have some level of power. So I'm a COVID long hauler, right? I got sick in March of 2020 and I'm still on heart medication today. I got sick at a time when there was no name for why I was not better from COVID. And I had the experience of convening with other people on the internet who were also having this experience. We were looking at medical journals in the absence of having medical degrees or having to go to medical school. And then we meet disability advocates who have been in this fight for a really long time. And we are able to start to influence decision makers that they need to address our problem. And that dynamic is playing out in a number of different things. In that instance, it worked to our benefit, right? I think the Black Lives Matter movement in a world which was gatekept by white media men would have been stifled, but social media allowed people to find each other and create a megaphone that allowed their ideas to carry. So we are, as people of color, in a place now where we have enough, just enough power to be agitators, but like really potent agitators, but not enough power to shape the moments that we are in the middle of. And if you're a leader in the middle of that, then your people are looking at that and they're like, well, why don't you do X? Like, well, I don't have that power. And that is not what our people want to hear. And it's also a complex story that we're not telling and we're not grappling with. It's tempting for me to put your work in sort of the the bucket that we've talked about and then another bucket, which is anti-Blackness in our community, in Latinx communities. The work is not separate and apart. There is tremendous overlap in this work. I am for I want to talk about this a bit, but I want to start by what brought you to not just anti-Blackness, but anti-Blackness within our communities specifically as an area of change work? So I think first, there is no me that becomes a first-generation college student, a first-generation salaried worker without the Black leaders. I am not here in being able to do work I love in the absence of Black people, right? And because there are so few, and I would say that my experience of Latinx leaders in the very first parts of my life were that a lot of the men in our community also blocked me out of opportunity and were in many ways not in my corner when it came to forward movement and progress in the ways that Black leaders were. And then I look at the coalition building opportunities that we need to create, and we are just the weak piece of the puzzle all the time. First of all, way to forget Afro-Latinx people. And second of all, it takes so little for that competition 
to get kicked up. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a room with a Latinx leader that is like, oh, I just wish we had this thing that Black people have. I don't think that we recognize that as the internalized anti-Blackness that exists in our community. The story of the Latinx community is one of erasure and invisibility, right? Absolutely. But often the story of Black folks is one of hypervisibility and violence. I see in the Black community an absolute advocacy for rights. And I see in our community an advocacy for acceptance. And those two things are fundamentally different things. And I want for us to want rights more than we want acceptance. What does it mean for Latinx leaders? What does it mean for Black leaders? What does it mean for Latinx leaders, some of whom are Black, that they're going to be running up against these, this work and running up against these standards and then inevitably failing? I think, one, we have to be clear, both for ourselves and for the movement, that we do not have all the answers. We're really bad at that. <laughs> like, I think in part because of that brand to budget gap, we have to create the aura of success to get any fragment. I also think part of it is the experience so many of us have had that we do not have the luxury of saying, I don't know, less white people sure. then assume that we're not sufficiently competent. For sure, for sure, right? Like, I think it, like this I think is like right. the to me this is like the flip side to fake it till you make it, which is yeah. like you fake it till you make it, you make it, and then what? I think one of the things I realized as I became an executive almost a decade ago was, yeah, yay, we made it, but to what ends? Like I think so many people's dreams have been limited to attaining the thing rather than doing the thing. It's why so much of my work focuses on our personal journeys and identities and how all the ways in which we got our needs and values met, our value met, get in the way of good leadership. Because unless we can reckon with those ghosts, we will constantly sacrifice our people for our own gain. And I think that there's a real gap right now in our understanding of the difference between collective liberation and personal success within these systems. I don't actually begrudge anyone creating the conditions for themselves to be successful in what has been a very broken America. I do not think it is right for us to mix that up with collective liberation because the system's working for everyone and being safe in them is different than a few of us getting luxury and comfort. That's a perfect note to end on, but I am going to ask you what I missed. I think we are in the most acute war on people of color that we've experienced in recent memory. And what I'm clear about is that war almost killed me twice in the last two years. I look at COVID and... I am clear that there are many of us that will not make it to the other end. And for me, the goal right now is to truncate the amount of time that we spend in the dark place. 
and seed the tools that we need for the next version of what we are going to become. And if we're going to do that, we have to learn to be in community together, even through disagreement, conflict, and difference. And we do not currently have the language for that, but all of us need to be working to create it. Carla, I am so grateful to live in the same moment with you, as dark as that moment is, because your clarity is exactly the thing that I have been craving and looking for. So thank you for all of the thought and work you have put into everything you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for listening. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua and me, Alicia Menendez. Paulina Velasco is our producer. Manuela Bedoya is our marketing lead. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer and mix this episode. We love hearing from you. It makes our day. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Slide into our DMs on Instagram. Tweet us at latinatolatina. Check out our merchandise that is on our website, latinatolatina.com slash shop. And remember, please subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, wherever you are listening right now. Every time you share this podcast, every time you share an episode, every time you leave a review, it helps us to grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.